Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, we've been using this brand new way of uh, letting you support Canada Land and get ad-free versions of Canada Land, and it's working out fantastically well. It's never been easier. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join, and for five bucks a month Canadian, bloop, we'll just install a premium ad-free Canada Land feed onto the pod catching app of your choice. It takes moments, and that's how we make the show is with your help. Go do it. Hey, Denise Balkasun, executive editor at Chatelaine Magazine. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you. Uh, Listen, today, he's the guy who wants the CBC to focus on radio, take a big step back from television, and he wants the CBC to stop fighting with digital news organizations for ad dollars. Did Aaron O'Toole just win leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, or did I? (laughs) Um, Do you want to take back Canada? I I mean, what would I even do with it? Uh, We're also going to talk about the aftermath of the summer of racial reckoning in newsrooms. Who knew that eliminating racism forever would be this difficult? Good to have you back. Well, thanks again. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Cheryl Mudge, Krista Renwick, Jeremy Bell, Liz Turner, Leah Cox, Juliet. Graham Clark, and Victoria. I'm Victoria, a data scientist living abroad in Vienna, Austria, and I'm originally from Toronto. I support Canada Land because there's a deficit of relatable journalism in the Canadian media scene. 
CanadaLand creates meaningful content that keeps me up to date about important issues that affect my friends and family. Specifically, their coverage of how COVID-19 and its effect on working mothers captured perfectly the uncertainty and frustration everyone I know is feeling. Although sometimes maybe a bit too harsh, I'm happy that at least someone is asking the hard questions. An O'Toole government will modernize and reform the CBC. We will end funding for CBC Digital, and we will cut CBC English TV budget by 50%. Our plan will phase out TV advertising with the goal to fully privatize CBC English TV by the end of our first mandate. We will preserve CBC Radio. It is commercial free and delivers public interest programming from coast to coast. We will also preserve Radio-Canada, which plays an important role connecting Quebecers and Francophones across Canada in their own language. The world of broadcast media has changed dramatically, but our public broadcaster is stuck in the past. The family feud is not the Canadian story. It's 2020. Canada has changed. The CBC must change. So there he is, Denise, uh, the new leader of the Conservative Party, with a campaign promise to defund the CBC. Mm-hmm. I will say for clarity, I no, I don't. I'm not on board with the uh, defund CBC era tool. Uh, like, first of all, what a stupid idea that the CBC shouldn't be in digital. Like, if the idea is to modernize the CBC, the, yes. th- then the pressure is that they shouldn't be competing with newspapers and other digital news sources for ad dollars. That's that's the kind of lobbying pressure he's been facing from Post Media and others. That, that's just so dumb. I'm kind of with him on, like, the TV thing. And some of the opinion stuff. I actually thought it was a fair argument when CBC launched its opinion section that investigative reporting is so expensive that that is what public journalism dollars should be going towards, whereas opinions are cheap. (laughs) Um, And, (laughs) you know, paying out $500, $300 here and there is kind of a waste of money that could be solidified and go towards a bigger project. I thought that argument had some merit. I do too, but let's not confuse those of us who feel like a public broadcaster is important and should be really focused on original news reporting from the kind of rabid uh, voter base of uh, conservatives who are like, defund the CBC, trash it, let's let's get rid of it. I think mm-hmm. he's maybe trying to kind of walk the line between the both of them. I found it remarkable that the media is so politicized in Canada right now mm-hmm. that he actually ran for conservative party leadership on a platform of defunding the CBC. Like, that's a campaign promise he's made. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, that an issue like that has taken such center stage in previous leadership battles. But do we have any idea how much the people that actually voted for him care about that? He may have said it to come across as, you know, a real conservative guy who cares about media bias, but is that what made people choose him in the end? Any polling that I've seen is that most people want the CBC to either stay funded as is or even have its funding increased. But amongst conservatives who care about this, they care a lot. I mean, I I try to always see things from the other point of view. And now I actually can, because now that there's a media bailout that's benefiting all legacy media in Canada, I have to pay part of Sue Ann Levy's salary Mm -hmm. as she sows division between me and my neighbor. I have to pay for Toronto Sun salaries while that paper 
explicitly conspires with the Doug Ford campaign to get him into office. Like having to pay for media that is going against your interest in a very directed way and, and insulting you in the process, it feels gross. And that's how a lot of conservatives feel about the CBC. I suppose. I mean, that's how a lot of black people feel about the CBC as well. But the argument has always been to make it more equitable, not to defund it because national public journalism is important. Yes. I mean, we get into a thing where some people just want to, you know, throw it over to the open uh, open market. But I mean, we're kind of past that. Like, let's let's listen to Andrew Shear here. Here's what he said with his sort of crybaby going away speech on his way out. At a time when the mainstream media bias in this country has never been more clear. Please stay involved. Be bold. Think challenge the mainstream media. Don't take their narrative as fact. Check out smart, independent, objective organizations that are growing all the time, like the Post Millennial or True North. There are other places to get information. I'll say this, Denise. I think that this is all a direct result of the Trudeau government politicizing media through the bailout and through restoring funding to the CBC. Mm -hmm. It's now impossible to claim that these aren't political issues. I think that a couple things can be true at the same time. Like, I think it's true when CBC reporters say, don't be ridiculous. The fact that Justin Trudeau restored the CBC's funding doesn't influence my political coverage one iota. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's also true when many average Canadians say, come on, CBC, one government restored $600 million of funding and another government now wants to gut your funding. You have a stake in the outcome of the next federal election. Mm -hmm. Media is now hopelessly in play politically. Yeah, I mean, but as you said, maybe that makes it true of everyone. I, uh, you know, when I worked at the Globe, there were often sentiments about that it was unfair that CBC got public money. But now, as you say, everyone gets some, even if CBC gets the most. In terms of Andrew Shear, it's hilarious that he would use the word objective. It's also interesting because the idea that news should be objective is bubbling up at the same time that people are talking about equity in news and how objectivity has been used as a way to actually not listen to marginalized groups. I think you were referencing, if I'm not incorrect, this really thoughtful piece by Pesent Matar in The Walrus mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, about this idea of journalistic objectivity, which is like, I think it's been a long time coming and there's a school of thought in journalism of which you're well aware that that's sort of always been a lie and we're better off without it and we'd rather have accuracy and transparency and disclosure as opposed to this lie of objectivity. But what Pesent's piece really got me thinking about is this idea of objectivity as a privilege. That it's it's way easier for editors to kind of consider a neutral identity like the, a mm -hmm. white male identity as capable of objectivity, whereas, you know, black people covering black uh, lives matter are thought to be, um, well, how could you possibly be objective? Yes, you're connected to the story. Yeah, well, we're all connected to these stories. Exactly. Well, that is the point, right? But one one type of connection is considered a bias and the other type of connection is not. But how does the post-millennial get its funding? True North is like a weird pseudo charity that is very clearly connected to the conservative party is that right the conservative party connections i i'm not sure of they they are uh, they are a charity that was sort of grandfathered in yeah. they are a anti-immigration they call themselves a think tank you might call them a pressure group or a lobby group mm -hmm. so true north uh they also have been spreading misinformation about the uh the covid app tracking people's whereabouts which it does mm -hmm. not so some people call them a misinformation group mm -hmm. okay i retract the part about them being 
connected to the conservative party i did actually wait look no at the don't retract <laughs> don't retract our, okay. our intrepid producer tiffany is pointing out to me that their funding is a little bit murky but we do know thanks to press progress which itself was published out of a think tank yes we do know that eighteen thousand dollars of the true north's uh funding came from a longtime conservative donor okay if they come out of a lobby group that's like actively campaigning against open immigration policies i don't think they would call themselves an objective news source oh well, I mean, I think they would. <laughs> <laughs> and so for someone like Andrew Scheer to hold up objectivity as something incredibly important in journalism, I think is, you know, a bit disingenuous. I don't think he wants impartiality necessarily. Well, no, I mean, you know, the post-millennial gets this Andrew Scheer endorsement. That's not a big shocker. The co-owner of the post-millennial is Jeff Ballingal, who worked on Aaron O'Toole's right. campaign and who runs this propaganda right. Ontario Proud, Canada Proud network of sites. I mean, so uh, down is up and up is down. Like when Trudeau gets into this kind of conversation that like real news is under attack by fake shit. So we need to prop up the real stuff, which means determining what the real stuff is. And mm -hmm. so we're doing that and we're propping up the real stuff. Well, now you've created the opportunity for anybody who's not included in that to say, well, we're the objective real stuff because now the independence of those other ones is completely in question. Justin Trudeau wouldn't fund anything if it didn't benefit him to do so politically. It was a bad idea. And now we're paying the price for it. You know, that's interesting. When the bailout happened, what I personally found most upsetting is that so much of it went to legacy media when what I would like is to see some of the newer organizations get some sort of support to get on their feet. You know, the, the Narwhal, I think, is pretty excellent. I think the National Observer has, you know, some potential. But now that we talk about it this way, I wonder, you know, if they were to fund the Narwhal, would they therefore then have to fund the post-millennial? And so is it easier to fund a legacy organization than figure out which of the newbies are, quote-unquote, real journalism? I think it certainly would be less egregious had it been about some sort of a startup fund to get things going. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just think you're, you're playing with fire. Like there's a reason why independence and press, those words go together. And when you start messing around with that, there are consequences. I think one of the main issues, if we're going to talk about these news sources like the Post Millennial and True North Initiative, is the murkiness around who they're connected to or how they're funded. I take a much more expansive view than a lot of people. Like some people say like, oh, they have a distinct political point of view or they've, they've, they've made a certain mistake or reported something that was lousy and therefore it's fake news, burn them down. I think that there's lots of room for lots of different advocacy or points of view. It's just like, as a media reporter, I'm like, if you're not going to tell me who's behind you. So it took a long, mm -hmm. it took a lot of doing to figure out with Ontario Proud that it had this like Ontario development, Madame Holmes behind it. And then it wasn't clear that Jeff Ballingal was originally um, affiliated with Post Millennial. Then it was reported in the Globe and Mail that he's their chief marketing officer. Then it was reported in the National mm -hmm. Post that he's a co-owner along with Matthew Arizelli. And then with the True North Initiative, it's like, you know, how affiliated are they with the Conservative Party? They're like, where, where does the donation money come from? What is the you know role of this charity slash anti-immigration lobby group to this news source? Forget objectivity. I don't believe any news source in this country is objective. I just want to know, like, who's paying for me to hear this stuff? Are they trying to run a business or are they, or are they trying to just, like, manipulate public opinion? Those things have not always been clear with the post-millennial or with the True North Initiative. Well, it's hilarious that Andrew Scheer would say the post-millennial is objective then, because Jeff Ballingall, wasn't there a gif going around of him drinking Vuv at the O'Toole victory party? Like, how, <laughs> how is 
he not connected? He was part of the team that ousted Andrew Shear. So that's nice of Andrew Shear to give a shout out to the post millennial because <laughs> they weren't they were no friend or Balangal was no friend of his. And then O'Toole, uh, yeah, uh, our own Goldsby was uh, sharing a uh, a little video of Balangal rocking hard with a, with a bottle of mm-hmm. bub uh, at the O'Toole victory mm-hmm. party. How objective. <laughs> Did you catch this other thing? Like I found myself maybe agreeing with Andrew Shear. Here's the scenario. Natasha Fatah on CBC News Network was grilling Shear about whether or not the Conservative Party of Canada had not given enough oxygen to Leslie Lewis's campaign. What's the disconnect here? Why was Kamala Harris lauded and celebrated and one could argue Leslie Lewis was somewhat forgotten in, in the conversation? You know, that would be a great question for me to ask you and ask your network. Why you spend so much time talking about American politics and highlighting uh, American candidates. Here we have a Canadian candidate. Here we have uh, a black woman who's running for the leadership of the party. And as for the conversation around uh, the energy around it, uh, you can't look to the CBC to find uh, an accurate reporting of what's going on in the Conservative Party of Canada. There's a tremendous amount of excitement. And Sheer, I think with some justification, is kind of like appalled that he would be put on the spot by the CBC and he shoots back quite effectively saying, are you kidding me? Like it, it was you guys who ignored her campaign and mm-hmm. later making the point that like CBC lavished attention and really positive attention on Kamala Harris. And in fact, gave her like 500% more coverage than Leslie Lewis's campaign and Leslie mm-hmm. Lewis, like she finished a very strong third. That's something that, that I think the press did sleep on because it just didn't mm-hmm. fit into the kind of shifts within race and politics that we're kind of like more geared towards right now. I think part of the reason is also that Canadian media loves a horse race. You know, they love this guy versus this guy and they're neck and neck at the finish line. I think that's part of it. Um, but yes, I agree. I think that most media here doesn't know how to cover a black woman who's also conservative. They don't have the staff to know how to do it. And when everyone is being rightfully criticized for how poorly they're treating their racialized staff, like how are they going to cover Lesson Lewis? Most Canadians believe in access to abortion. And that is already a hard thing to cover. And if you're trying to cover a woman and a black woman who doesn't necessarily believe in that, that becomes a very difficult position for a news organization that sucks at diversity itself. I think that they were just uncomfortable and didn't know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, and then I I think failed at their jobs because it's not about what's happening and it's not supposed to be about what's happening inside that news organization. It's about, they're supposed to report on what's happening in the world and and specifically the world of Canadian politics. And Leslie Lewis happened, uh, even though a lot of people don't even know who she is still. I mean, that happened and Mm -hmm. it was kind of significant. I would like to say that my colleagues at McLean's, they did give Leslie Lewis a full profile, the same length as the profile that they did of O'Toole and McKay in the same issue. Um, that's actually where I learned the most about her. But day-to-day news coverage, I agree. You know, she wasn't she wasn't in there as much as McKay and O'Toole in their, you know, 30 seconds from the finish line narrative. I mean, just from a point of view of like reader interest, like 
McKay versus O'Toole as a juicy, you know, versus lesson. Look, like what is actually interesting to you in that? If you were editing those, the making those decisions, like I think you make a good point for all the awkwardness that is felt within those newsrooms for for like what do we do with a staunch socially conservative black woman? All of the failures of newsrooms to actually have people of color around to feel comfortable and confident in reporting on this stuff. It's a good example of how it costs you good coverage because that's Lesson mm-hmm. Lewis is a way better story than McKay versus O'Toole. I was wondering if people asked black commentators to speak on her and they turned it down. I mean, I have no idea, but most of the black intellectuals or policy people that go on the news right now, um, I wonder if they just said no because they would rather talk about more interesting issues than what disagreements they may have with the only black woman who's ever gotten any prominence on the national stage. But that's, you know, completely a guess on my part. I wonder if there were sort of weak attempts that failed. Huh. Like pundits who kind of passed at like, oh, it's another, oh, are black people allowed to have conservative? Yes. Or different opinions. Yes. Right. And like, you know what? I'm not going to be your person to talk about that. Well, especially at this moment where, you know, everyone is talking about very many more important issues to black communities as a whole. But yeah, it's a guess. So I should probably not say anything more about it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Denise, we duly note stuff that uh, otherwise might go, uh, you know, unduly noted. (laughs) That's what we do. What do you have? Well, as of our September issue, Chatelaine is making a commitment about our editorial budget. Um, so we have decided that we will be putting 40% minimum um, of our editorial freelance budget towards writers who are Black, Indigenous, and otherwise racialized. 
the way that we came to that number is we looked at this year's budget so far and we are at about 25%. Um, and so 40% seemed like a number that would be achievable by the end of the year. And we're really proud to do that. Our editor-in-chief, Maureen Halushek, put that on her Twitter last week, and it's in her editor's letter in our new issue that's out on Friday. Okay, that, that's a good thing for people to know, especially people who might want to pitch. Um, yes. Duly noted. I got a couple things. First, a quick one. The TAI reported that a Danish journalist arrived to cover the TMX pipeline, and uh, the border guard uh, at YVR at Vancouver's uh, International Airport wouldn't let him into the country. I saw that and I thought it was uh, both shocking and not surprising, I guess, like so many things. Yeah. You know what? I don't think that this is any kind of like directive from Ottawa that we're like no longer, you know, allowing entry to foreign journalists to come cover Canada. That's something that uh, China has been doing, uh, expelling foreign journalists. That's something that like kind of got hashed out in the early days of the pandemic that like no journalists are still allowed to fly to other countries. And, you know, in free countries, that's still happening. I think that this was just like a stupid border guard. Well, not stupid. A border guard with an opinion, you know, on TMX. Maybe. Maybe that was it. I mean, we don't really know. Like, to, to listen to the journalist telling the border guard was also kind of like holding him up to this, like, is that a job that a Canadian could be doing? Do you mm. have a work visa for Like, it seems like he was maybe just didn't understand. But, I mean, we don't know when you've got border guards making right. editorial decisions or not, which is why you just let journalists in to cover things. And, and when they don't, I think it should be duly noted. He was a, a bona fide public broadcaster, uh, mm-hmm. a journalist with a, with a public uh, news organization. So this shouldn't happen. And it's it's worth calling it out when it does. Duly noted. One more, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, Denise. Yeah, go for it. So, yeah, Parliament is prorogued. And I think we can say now, like, I don't, do we have to, like, talk around this? It is prorogued so that the uh, Trudeau administration does not have to face more grilling in committees about uh, the We Charity scandal. And, uh, of course, just hours after the proroguing was announced, these thousands of documents came out, and, and proroguing Parliament means that those documents won't have the same impact they might have. And I'm not going to do a whole episode about every revelation contained in those documents, because that would be a lot of episodes and a lot more we coverage than we're going to do lest we just become the weekly we podcast mm-hmm. but i don't like the idea of revelations in those documents kind of going overlooked because of this proroguing and you know parliamentary committees being shelved doesn't mean that we have to stop here's a few things that popped out from those documents 5000 pages of documents that were released the first is that it's literally a cover-up. They literally covered up and redacted tons of the information. And usually there's a process whereby, like, they don't have the sole authority to redact. You know, they're supposed to redact things for privacy concerns and for parliamentary privilege. But then there's a process usually where you can challenge those redactions and say, wait, were you, were you actually covering up something that was incriminating? And by proroguing, they're trying to get around that. And uh, one thing that I'll point out is that the House of Commons law clerk has raised the alarm about pre-redacted documents, and that's being challenged. Mm -hmm. So what lies underneath the cover-up, what lies underneath those black bars, we may live to find out. But even within the stuff that is revealed, there's some really relevant stuff. I guess the most relevant being that uh, the Trudeau government lied to this question that Minister Chagger was asked if she had discussed the volunteer program with we. She said definitively, I, I did not discuss this program with anyone at we. Well, there's an email in those documents from Craig Kilberger to Minister Chagger in which he directly references, our team has been hard at work to adapt your suggestion hmm. of, a, of a second stream focused on a summer service opportunity. So it seems as clear as day to me. 
Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, he found this interesting bunch of stuff where in their pitch to the government, the We Charity was basically selling the fact that they have this media partnership with the Globe and Mail and with Mm -hmm. CTV and saying, here's one thing we'll do if we get this grant. We will use our space in the Globe and Mail to promote it. And from our perspective, we're like, wow, like the Kielbergers were selling the Trudeau government space in the Globe and Mail. Mm -hmm. How about that? And on CTV. But what about the children? What were the children getting, Jesse? Won't someone think of the children? You know, I have... I have long thought that we was white saviorism and I expected some sort of scandal at some point, And yet this is just so massive. It's, it's more massive than I, than I thought. Duly noted. Okay, Denise, <laughs> I'm going to read to you the words of one of the last titans of column writing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Here's a direct quote of the writing of Rosie DeMano. This is a fucking abomination. And I will not submit to yet another level of interference in an insanely over-micromanaged newsroom. Do you feel like uh, explaining to people what the hell's going on in that sentence? Sure. So, uh, last week, I believe, Sri Pradkar from the Toronto Star announced that she has a new position. I'm sorry, I forget the name of it. Uh, They're calling it the First Internal Ombudsperson. And so that position would be that if any employees at the star had concerns about an equity issue, that they could discuss it anonymously with her and she would then discuss it with management. And so I guess it's an intermediary job because it's often difficult to talk about these things without fearing that your job will somehow be affected. And I guess Rosie didn't like it. And so she replied all to the entire newsroom, calling it a fucking abomination. Reply all that yes. went to everyone. I mean, you never know if that's on purpose or just an old person, but um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you know, Canada Land published just uh, on Tuesday a reply letter that 62 different journalists of the Star co signed objecting to what they describe as Rosie DeMano's hateful, racist email mm-hmm. and uh, basically challenging management. What are you going to do about this? Um, so we got our hands on that internal message and we published it. As I understand it, and, and tell me if your understanding is different, Denise, the idea here is that like it's a recognition from the Toronto Star after the summer where like just about every major newsroom has uh, been having a you know, rather publicly aired conflagration of racialized workers about what it's like to work in news uh, as a racialized worker and kind of a reckoning with management. I think that this was a pretty reasonable move from the part of the Toronto Star saying, in a perfect world, we would have better representation throughout our organization and at the highest levels. And um, we don't live in that perfect world just yet. And so we, we understand that journalists are going to get into a situation where the manager is their direct report might be trying to edit something out of their piece or ask them to cover something because of their identity or not cover something because of their identity or just the stuff we were talking about before, challenge them on their objectivity, unconscious bias issues where the reporter might feel like race or discrimination is playing a role and they can't talk about it directly Mm -hmm. to their manager. Let's create a place for them to go anonymously or otherwise, and and let's empower Shri to deal with these situations. Does that sound like your understanding of the role? Well, I would like to know what the empowerment is. Um, I mean, all power to Shri. 
I did think it sounded a little bit like a job where she might have to hear a bunch of things and not necessarily have the power to deal with it. You're totally right. They're not transparent about what Shri can do if she finds that there is an instance of discrimination. Now, I will temper that by saying that the the role of the public editor at the Toronto Star, the role of an ombud at any news organization usually has very amorphous or non-existent powers. Mm -hmm. Often it's just sort of a certain moral authority and they deliberately leave uh, ambiguous or they don't actually have teeth so that it's sort of conditional. Like we will get this person to issue a verdict or an opinion, but it's kind of up to us whether or not we do anything about it. And I think the worst case outcomes, which happen with some regularity, is that it allows news organizations to say that they have a mechanism to deal with these sorts of things, but it's not an effective one or or like it's not an empowered one. I was being generous mm-hmm. earlier. I guess we kind of hope that when they do something like that and for Shri to take it on, she's like kind of co-signing that this is going to be meaningful. You hope that it works out. I think she's also hoping and um, I also hope she's getting paid extra for it. I think that the demand letter you know, proves the challenges of this. Are the people in the star newsroom going to respect this position? And is there going to be power given to it? And Rosie DeMano has said, no, no, I do not respect this. I don't respect the idea. It doesn't show any respect for the person taking on the job, let alone the other racialized colleagues that she has. And, you know, it's a pretty good example of the uphill battle. Even if the star does have the best intentions, there better be some power behind it because the pushback was fast. Denise, a lot of people on Twitter are responding to this are saying, why are Rosie DeMano's colleagues uh, calling her racist? What was racist? I mean, maybe she was rude. She shouldn't have sworn in that email that, that reply all. But what's racist about her calling it a fucking abomination that there's now going to be this ombudsperson? Maybe that's just about editorial independence that she doesn't want to have somebody else messing with her copy. How is that racist? She's been asked. To be so reactive to the idea that you might have to discuss the treatment of race in your column seems pretty suspect, right? Because as we discussed, we don't even know what the power of this position is. So really what she's reacting to at this point is possibly having to discuss how race is represented in her work. And even the idea of discussing it is a fucking abomination. And just on a personal level that her colleague at the Toronto Star has this new job Mm. and she's like your job is a fucking abomination (laughs) yeah i mean i guess that could just be personal and not read as racist but when that new job is about adding a level of uh, accountability for that kind of coverage it's kind of hard to get away from that i mean i'm sure that it's probably also about her back catalog but unfortunately i'm not as familiar with rosie's back catalog but i'd have to do a google before i could say (laughs) that for sure and just think about this it's not as if they were telling rosie demano Shri is now going to be another editor who has control over your copy. Yeah. You would think that Rosie DeMano would welcome any level of extra scrutiny on her copy. Famously, she basically just types directly into the Toronto Star. I was going to say, why would you think that? My understanding is she doesn't welcome any any oversight. (laughs) This is just a rumor. It may not be true. I'll rephrase. (laughs) Uh, She would be wise to welcome it because left to her own devices, as she has been, she writes leads like this. Oh, God. She lost a womb, <laughs> but gained a penis. That's some Rosie DeMano copy there. It, when she was writing about a, a woman who was a victim of a doctor's sex assault, uh, the, the former, her womb, was being removed surgically, full hysterectomy, while the latter was forcibly shoved into her slack mouth. What? Mm, what? Yeah. Give this woman an editor. This 
elite and vanishing cast of Canadian columnists who don't get edited. Well, I mean, it's the Rex Murphy thing, right? Yeah. Two senior editors both admitted that no one had read his column about how racism doesn't exist in Canada. There's a very few number of columnists who are allowed that privilege anymore, and they all seem to have a certain type of view. Hmm. I think that in, under its previous ownership, um, Rosie DeMano was absolutely down with the inner circle and she was safe no matter what she did. But if I just bought the Toronto Star, I know that sooner or later Rosie DeMano is going to be like a huge problem for me if she isn't already. I might take this opportunity to do something about it. But what is a huge problem? You know, are a lot of letters a huge problem? Is racialized journalists quitting a huge problem? Because those things have already been happening. You know, I really bet there are a lot of readers that like her. Like, what is a problem, basically? Even if she's encouraged to retire, she'll have a massive pension, and then she will go to Quillette and write about cancel culture. <laughs> uh, yes. I just, don't know what, I just don't know what the win would be, what, what I would see as a win. Unless, you know, they then hired two young, smart, different Black colonists were hired, you know, that might be a win, but I'm pretty cynical about it. I, I just don't see how anything in the Rosie situation is going to come out in a way that I'm happy about. What about the other Rosie situation? You were involved in another Rosie situation. <laughs> uh, I mean, I wasn't the only person involved, but yes. Yeah, so um, I guess there was a panel about the conservative leadership race and um, on CBC and there were four white women. There was uh, Rosemary Barton, there was Vashi Capellos and a woman who does mental health out of Nova Scotia and someone else I don't remember. One of the guests did a screen cap and it was four white women in a row and two of them had very similar hair. And the guest said, you know, look at this great panel. I'm so happy. And then Rosie retweeted it. Hashtag proud. Like proud that it's a finally we're here, an all female political panel. Well, that's how I interpreted it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I just found it. You know, I don't understand if white people get this, like if white journalists get this, like this year has seen so many specifically black and indigenous women talk about the garbage they have gone through at the CBC mm -hmm. and, you know, and a very, you know, young new journalist, Amani Walker, she was the one to report Wendy Mesley for say the N word and Pacent's piece, Christine Genier, who had. Uh, she's an indigenous journalist in the Yukon, and she had a white colleague come to her house, I guess, for her to say that they weren't racist. Like, yeah. The black journalists at the CBC have put out a list of requests to make the corporation more equitable. So many things have happened by black and indigenous women specifically, and clearly none of that has been absorbed by Rosie Barton to the point where her idea of success for women must include success for racialized women. For her, a panel of four white women is somehow remarkable. And I actually find that hurtful when I think about the journalists at the CBC that have done so much work. It's not easy to write. It's not, it's not like a thing that they did for fun one day, actually. It's like Pacent in her column in The Walrus, she talks about asking her colleagues to question police narratives and not just, you know, run a police bulletin without, you know, changing the words at all. And she really felt that that had slowed her career at CBC, you know, like it's not fun to write about these things. And so I basically said that on Twitter, you know, I, I retweeted Rosie Barton and I said, this is just so disappointing considering how much work 
racialized women have done at the CBC this year alone. So then she responded to me and to other people, including Leonard Monkman was one I noticed. He also works at CBC just saying, well, I totally recognize that we need diversity, but this is still a milestone. And the fact that that is true to her is just so, it's just so deflating to think about whether anything will ever change at the CBC. You responded that uh, multiple studies have shown that white women benefit most from quote unquote mm-hmm. diversity initiatives. Yes. And then the, and then the energy suddenly stops. Yeah. I mean, it's true. <laughs> Forbes has run a story about it. There's a lot. If you look in Google Scholar, diversity initiatives are introduced at whatever workplace you like. And within a couple of years, and this is true of the Globe and Mail where I used to work, you can see that a lot more white women have been hired and have taken on senior positions, whereas the number of racialized employees and obviously of racialized female employees is stagnant. Now, CBC employees are not supposed to opine on Twitter about anything controversial, but of course, A, if you're Rosie Barton, and B, if you're saying something nice, you know, I'm proud. I'm Mm -hmm. proud that we have uh, an all-female panel. That's an opinion. I I guess it's on a controversial subject, but it's an acceptable opinion, and she has the power to say that. Maybe there was somewhere that could have gone beyond just like where it ended that could have been beneficial. But it's it's kind of like after the summer where a lot of stuff finally came out, it does feel like it's kind of going back into this let us not speak of this territory. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I was looking around, and I think the star position and then Chorus Entertainment is doing um, a diversity review with a firm called Diversipro, and some current and former employees at Chorus are pushing them to make that public once it happens. Those are the only two examples of any even attempt at change that I've seen. In terms of the list that Black employees have uh, presented at the CBC, my understanding is that management has said, oh, yeah, we're considering this, we'll get back to you, you know, pat, pat, pat on the head. Um, I don't think, I don't think, I haven't heard of any movement beyond that. I haven't heard of any movement anywhere else. Doesn't look like anything new is happening. That's sad to hear that. I mean, because it really did feel like this was a summer where everything was in motion. Just seeing the the, the, the stories that were written in the confessionals or the, uh, the transparency, sometimes from people being like, all right, I'm finally out of the CBC and now let me tell you what happened there. But a lot of it, like people just saying, you know what, I'm going to have to break the rules by talking about mm-hmm. this stuff and it's worth it to me. And then in an I am Spartacus kind of way, a lot of other people at CBC and elsewhere standing up and saying, well, I'm going to talk about it too. And it really did feel like, wow, management is being put to a challenge here. They're going to have to change or they're going to have mm-hmm. to like get rid of everybody. Like It felt like every, anything was possible at a certain point. For as horrible as things have been, this was something that felt like kind of a bright light in, in recent months. So I'm not challenging your pessimism. I'm just bummed out by it. Well, we are not going to stop, right? Like the racialized journalists of Canada, we are not going to stop. And five years ago or three years ago, uh, racialized journalists at the CBC may not have said something at Twitter. Something that came up with the Christine Genier situation is their journalism standards and practice code, which prevents people from saying things really, as you said, that's an opinion on social media, but then that means you can't criticize the racism and it's basically silencing people about racism within their own institutions. I think, I don't think that people are going to stand for that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I am disappointed, but we're not going to, we're not going to stop. <laughs> we're not going to stop. Especially me. I'm an old cockroach. I was wondering, Jesse, what you have done at Canada Land in the year 2020, considering this racial reckoning in Canadian journalism. In our coverage or internally? Internally. Internally is the most important. And it's also just not about hiring. 
Like you can't hire three people and then not support them. And then they just quit in two years, which is basically the cycle everywhere. That was kind of like our problem prior to this summer was retention and really trying to look at like, okay, how do we support people so that, you know, as I kind of familiarize myself with these concepts of like the glass cliff, our commitment is that we need to have representation at every level of this company. We're doing our best and we've had a lot of progress in having people get internally promoted. I'll tell you what's hard, Denise, and where the external problems in this industry really become a problem for us is now that we're getting to a point where we're able to hire people who are like mid-career or even senior and we have the money to hire them and we want to hire people who are going to reflect that diversity at like decision-making management positions. We want people with hiring and firing ability with budgets and we want pay equity for those people. By the time you get to mid-career and late career, this industry has gotten rid of a lot of racialized people. Like there's not a lot of people left. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to put it all off onto the industry. Maybe it's Canada Land's reputations precluding people from applying. I, I fully, uh, you know, that, that could be a factor as well. But it's, it's not a huge industry and we have a pretty good idea of who's out there and we're reaching out to people. But it's hard. It's harder than reflecting it with hiring white women. You know, mm -hmm. it's harder to go out and actually prove that we're worth people's time in that way and also find those people because there's not enough of them because a lot of people just leave. I mean, I would say it's very likely both. I think the reputation of every organization definitely follows it. That would be something for all organizations, including Candleland, to consider and whether, you know, how do you repair those reputations? Because you can't just go, it's not always about like going forward, going forward. Um, and then mid-career racialized journalists are very scarce. I'm finding that myself. St. Joseph, where I work now, there's discussion of having diversity fellows. I did suggest that it should be about mid-career journalists because everyone gets very excited about a 22-year-old who's newly out of journalism school. Mm -hmm. but for me, it's like the 30-year-old who they're starting to have real bills. They're starting to maybe want a permanent place to live or a kid. And the burden of being a racialized journalist plus the terrible money is just like, forget it. I'm out of here. So I think that's really where the support is perhaps most needed. <laughs> Tiffany texted me, maybe talk about the new hires, me and Roz as full-time staff. I, I, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Why can't you talk about it? I think if you say to me, what have you done? And I say, oh, I've hired two incredible journalists, full-time staff, uh, and they're both women of color. Isn't that just like by definition tokenizing people? Well, then I would say to you, what are you going to do to make sure they stay around? And what Twitter's going to say to you is, what about all the previous women of color that you've hired? Where did they go? So, Tiffany, that, that's not enough. <laughs> that's your shortcuts. Denise, thank you. Thanks for having me. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Denise, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Balkasoon. Um, and you can read stuff that I've edited at Shadowland.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join or click the link in your show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. 
You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.